My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We are joined today by a guest that I am very hyped to speak to. His list of accomplishments is both long and considerable. He's the creator of shows like Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls, Pushing Daisies, and American Gods. But in this household... He will always be the absolute madman who launched Hannibal, one of the gnarliest shows ever to appear on network television, and we are huge fans of that show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Brian Fuller. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Hello, gentlemen. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get into the King thing in just a second, but this is actually my first time interacting with you, and I want to take the opportunity to tell you how much I I love Hannibal. Yay! uh, (laughs) <laughs> I was I was initially skeptical of how a, a Hannibal series could work, you know, like I think a lot of people were, but I've never seen anything else quite like that show. It made me feel like I, I mean, this is a great compliment and I hope you take it that way. But watching that show made me feel ill. It made oh, me feel it made me feel like, you know, like that feeling when you're coming out of a nightmare, you know, and uh, like diarrhea very- sweats. Not diarrhea sweats. No, no. That's how I got with when I tried to watch Entourage. But with <laughs> with with Hannibal, there there's such this this pervasive sense of of dread that's just dripping off every line reading and every speck of set design in that thing. Um, it's incredible. I can't believe you got it on network television, and it was as violent and, and beautiful as it was. And um, thank you. So much for making it. I hope you guys. Thank you for watching it. Yeah. I I hope your entire team gets to take another crack at it somewhere up the road. I feel like you had a lot left to give. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot uh, left in that story to tell. Yeah, of course. Of course. And before we we jump in even further, I would like to go back to Dead Like Me and say thank you for that. And I'm also very close with uh, Laura Harris, who was on that show. She's like the sweetest person in the world. I met her during her um, time here in Austin shooting uh, The Faculty. She was great on the show, and uh, and I really loved it. She was great in The Faculty. That was yeah, the first time I've seen her taking yeah. over the world and everything. Yeah, she gets to be the, the sweet, adorable, can't possibly be the alien Southern Belle that, of course, is the alien. <laughs> yep. Always how it turns out, isn't it? <laughs> Always right. the one you least suspect. Um, Brian, you've you've brought a a major King title to us this week, which is of course Salem's Lot. If you could tell us about your Stephen King origin story, how did you how did you come to King in the first place? What are your earliest memories of him and his work? Well, really, I think the my first exposure to him was in the kind of last minute impulse buy paperback book section in the grocery store and all of those crazy covers, you know, you think of night shift that had the bandaged hand with all the eyes on it, or even the, the carry cover of this mysterious girl. There was, there was something fascinating about the artwork to the Stephen King books that were so 
graphically and expertly designed to fit the the audience for for the king experience which is very americana and very much rooted in kind of uh, a southern american gothic horror gone to the midwest or actually the the eastern uh seaboard with with all the main shenanigans that happen in his his storytelling Right. So I really it was the it was the covers that got me, and then when I was old enough to read, I believe the first book that I read of his was Salem's Lot, and that was really because I was obsessed with Dracula, I was obsessed with vampires, and I was curious how he was going to spin, uh, you know, an old world evil coming to small town America, which was very relatable to me at that age because I grew up in the Lewis Clark Valley and in the late seventies through the mid eighties, there was a serial killer that was uh, haunting, haunting the locals. And so there was something about King's work that always spoke to the inherent evils in, in modern America. And even looking at, at the, the opening of Salem's lot, he kind of explores the denizens of the town in an innocuous way, kind of popping around houses and looking through windows. And what he shows you is that the the American dream or the American presentational dream is a fallacy. And underneath all of that lies great horror. And I think that's one of the things that made his work so striking was that it was about evil Americans underneath, you know, the skin of it all. And and I think that's why his work became so pervasive. I'm curious about this uh, serial killer business. Um, yes. First of all, what was the killer's methodology? Like, is this a famous killer or like, um, well, he's, there's, there's a couple of great podcasts. Like if you do uh crime scene, murder mystery, uh, which is a fantastic podcast by Ryan Krauss, a true crime podcast. Uh, and he kind of gets into the micro, meso, and macro of of serial killers and their place in society and society's responsibility and evolution and the universe's role and how serial killers are able to get away with what they get away with when they get away with it. And it's it's super fascinating. So if you want to know more about this this guy, I would watch. Uh, there's a great documentary called Confluence about the murders and because it, they took place at the confluence of the snake river and the, uh, the Clearwater river, uh, right on the border of Idaho and Washington. For me growing up, it was fascinating to be in such a small community and feel so many limitations of, of life where like there wasn't even a movie theater and in my hometown, you have to go to the next town over. There was a drive-in, but it frequently played, you know, adult fair. And, you know, I remember many times that my dad would drive and park outside the drive-in and watch porn while my mom screamed at him to drive away covering our <laughs> eyes and he would just <laughs> shut off the car and watch and so there was this what? yeah he was he, he was a bad guy um what was interesting about the relationship between this these serial killings and reading Stephen King as as a kid cuz i believe i started reading 
his books when I was 10 or 11 and probably just too early. Like I I went, I graduated from Piers Anthony kind of Xanth series and I picked up Salem's Lot and I was ready for something a little juicier in terms of the stakes. And and really, the transportation into that world was was slicked and and e- lubricated because I was acutely aware that everybody is full of shit and everybody has a presentational self, particularly in a small town community. And we we frequently talk about like the jewels of small town American life. But what Stephen King got right about that is that it 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 betrays a a seediness and a depravity and a willingness and ability to hide in plain sight. And even though when communities are small, everybody tends to know your business, uh, it was fascinating to see how the adults would react to pretty much knowing who the serial killer was because the the serial killer in in my hometown benefited greatly from because it was Lewiston, Idaho, Clarkston, Washington, and Asoton, Washington were sort of this tri-city valley. And it had three small towns and like one really small town, one one small town, and one uh, town that was a little bit bigger. So it was like eighteen thousand people in the biggest town. 4,000 people in the, the medium town and, you know, a few hundred uh, in wow. the smallest town. And what was interesting is that there was a juxtaposition of a lot of different counties. So you would have a Soton County and the Nez Perce County, and then you would have the Nez Perce Reservation, which is its own kind of judicial jurisdiction. And this killer came into this community very smartly because he knew he could kill somebody in one county and bury the body in another county Mm -hmm. or ditch the body in another county. And because of the lack of forensics and forensic science at that point, um, he was able to get away with it. And also because the, I believe the sheriff of Asotin, who was, uh, that was one of the the first murders or the first disappearance. I believe her, her body was never found disappeared in a Soton in a Soton County and the chief of police had no training. He just applied for the job as a local and got it. And uh, so he had no police training. He had no, there was no forensic training to be had at that point because uh, this is the late seventies. And so what was, what was so strategic and fascinating the way this uh, serial killer would move is he was entering a community that was almost designed for him to get away with murder. And he did. And he's never been caught. And even though everybody knows who did it, and he moved away finally, I believe, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. But all the all the adults knew who this guy was, and they would advise the kids not to be alone with him. And but nothing, there was no kind of Freddy Krueger parentage coming to to wreak justice on on the the murderer in their midst. It was just you know don't be alone with Lance Voss. I should say allegedly. Uh, but, <laughs> Cover your ass. 
Yes. What was fascinating is that we still trick-or-treated. We still went out. And I remember like several Halloweens that passed by and we were just told, if you see a brown van, call the police. Because we knew that one of the victims who was last seen getting into a brown van with her bicycle and then a few days later, uh, parts of her showed up. She was, she was cut into pieces. And I remember distinctly as a young scout and this alleged serial killer named Lance Voss was uh, the assistant scoutmaster in the troop that I was in. And he would design weapons out of like uh, airplane grade metals and like would bring them to Boy Scouts and throw melons up in the air and then cut them in a half with a stroke just to show how sharp he was able to to build these weapons. And then, of course, when when Kristen David, one of the, the, the first victims to show up, was showed up dismembered. Actually, uh, a young man in the high school was water skiing and water skied over her leg. And what? Uh, but the, the official story is that fishermen found it because the father of the ch- of the the young person who water skied over the the leg, uh, they didn't want his kid involved in any sort of news story or speculation or anybody bothering them. So they just said it was fishermen, but it was actually a kid in our school who water skied over the leg, which was kind of came out much later when somebody made a bad joke about Kristen David and, and he broke down. So I, I think what was so interesting about having this bed of small town deviancy and sort of this kind of conspiracy of, of inaction in a way where, where folks felt like they, they didn't know how to, to deal with this murder in their midst because the local police authorities kept on fucking it up and, and, and fantastic ways because the killer, you know, not unlike Barlow moved into a community that he knew he could exploit their weaknesses to, to his advantage. Okay. A lot to unpack here. (laughs) If everyone had a pretty good idea who was doing it, who was, you know, responsible for this allegedly, you know, it was, was it purely just the incompetency of the cops that was preventing him from getting, you know, taken in? Mostly. That's nuts. And I love the idea of this sheriff. I don't know if he was the sheriff, but like the guy in charge, he was just trying to take a paycheck job and he wandered into a serial killer investigation. That's insane. Good well, Lord. And then you, if you watch this documentary called, um, confluence it's interesting because they never mentioned lance boss's name because it is in um with cooperation of the police force and if you are cooperating with the police force in any of these documentaries or stories the police force can actually be sued um so they can't really say anything and anybody who or say the name and anybody who is making a film or a documentary on this subject with police participation can't say the name but if you're not participating with the police you can say the name because there is you know it is it is a a point of view and an insight based on your own human experience so um because we are not cooperating with the police force for this podcast we can say (laughs) the name was lance voss and lance voss was somebody who worked in the community who entered this community and chose really interesting jobs because 
he was an odd guy. He was really tall, had a really deep voice and was creepy. Like he was a creepy guy. You would be like, I, I buy that he is the murderer. And so he would work in the civic theater because there are weirdos in the civic theater. He would work in places that were kind of not transitional, but didn't have necessarily a, didn't require a paper trail in order to be hired. What was interesting about him being a scoutmaster, if you're, you know, supposing how one would get away with uh, hiding bodies because some of the a few of the bodies found were found but there were like 38 missing people who disappeared and were never heard from again that that people were like i wonder how many of these lance boss was responsible for allegedly there were a lot of disappearances in the valley and it was surrounded by all of this natural uh well, nature. And so there's sprawling fields, mountains, hills, creeks, uh, rivers, all, all sorts of places to hide a body. And Lance Voss would take scouts, you know, upriver on camping trips and, you know, looking at it retrospectively, it could be argued that he's up there looking for places to ditch bodies and he's bringing kids with him as the perfect alibi as to why he would be right. up in those areas. And, you know, even when Kristen David's body was, or her, her parts of her body were starting to be found uh, in the river, he was on the river when they found those bodies, like in the kind of traditional serial killers get off on people scrambling over their deeds. Right. And so on the river, when that young man water skied over Kristen David's severed leg, Lance Fox was on that, was on a boat on that river, kind of hanging out. He was with a couple of people. So it was sort of under the auspices of, you know, just being out on the river drinking beers as, as many did in that community. So it wasn't like truly bizarre that he would be out there, but it sure is convenient that this guy is somewhere near all of the, uh, knew all of the victims and knew and was, was conveniently placed at murder scene or at scenes where body parts were found. And so there was certainly a pattern and, and I would, if this is even remotely interesting, I would highly recommend Ryan Krause's podcast on the Lewis Clark Valley murders. Uh, Cause he goes into really incredible detail of not only those serial killings, but what begets a serial killer and why there was such a boom of serial killing in the seventies and in this sort of small town America. And what he proposes is that the boom of serial killers in the seventies was born out of world war two and men returning from the war and displacing the women in the workforce. So they had to go back home and be the authoritarian figures because men were disengaged from family because they were in the workforce and the whole dynamic of don't bother dad with that was left on the shoulders of mothers who were forced to sell a bill of goods that ultimately we would realize was a crock of shit. And that is the American dream. So you have all of these serial killers that are the boomers growing up and, you know, forties and fifties Americana being fed the impossibility of the American dream and also being 
guilted on their inability to achieve the impossible. So what was born out of that was searing resentment across all of uh, a lot of men toward women and because their mothers became the arbiters of society's uh, parameters and achievements. Then in the seventies, when those men are all coming of age, they see women as their mothers and want to kill them. And so it's a fascinating kind of societal evolution. And then as a result of all of those serial killers rearing their heads in the seventies, forensic science was born and we had to evolve as a society and universally to stop this great threat that had presented itself as a factor of human evolution and society coming out of World War II, if that all makes sense. Yeah. You sound very knowledgeable about this. It's, I think you should uh, make a show about serial killers. I think you might be good <laughs> at it. <laughs> Don't tempt me. It's funny. As you were talking, I um, plugged the name Lance Boss into a like a Google search just so I could like kind of pick at this later. And uh, you know, when you Google someone's name and it's like, it'll say people also ask one of the questions is where is Lance Foss now? And I looked at it and it says Lance Foss lives in such and such town in North Carolina. Now Lewiston investigators are said to keep an eye on him. Traces of him can be found on the internet. They're mostly comments left on conservative chat boards. When he moved to North Carolina, there was another murder. I think it was in 2012 where there is a woman, and I may be getting the details wrong, but there is a woman who lived in one part of town and she worked at Dunkin' Donuts on the other part of town. And she was found in an accidental drowning between her home and where she worked at Dunkin' Donuts. And guess who lived between those places? Was it Lance? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's there like there's a there's ongoing curiosity about this guy because and there's another documentary that is interesting about him called Cold Valley. And I believe in Cold Valley, which I haven't seen and only people have told me about it, there is an interview with a real estate agent who is showing Lance Voss a property in the Lewis Clark Valley and she got very creeped out by him because he was asking how many people knew that she was there. And she was like, everybody, everybody knows I'm here. Everybody in my office knows I'm here and they're expecting me. And at one point during their conversation, she turned around and she saw him quickly hide something behind his back as if he had raised it when she wasn't looking. And when she turned, he like lowered it because like he was about to strike, do what he does. And so there's, there's lots of, creepy anecdotes of of this guy. What if this guy's just the, like the most unlucky dude in the world? He's the, got the cleanest conscience, but just always is in the wrong place. That's what he wants you to believe. That's how he survives. <laughs> really? That's how he gets you, Eric. Come on. And there's a, there's a great point in the documentary Confluence where one of the police officers investigating something else entirely goes into this place uh, and is asking questions of a guy. And then out of the back room comes Lance Voss. And he's like, say, do you ever find anything out about those, the, the Kristen David and Christine white murders and started grilling the cop out of the blue. And the, and in the interview, you can see the cop go like, nobody would do that unless they were guilty. All right. Yeah. Like nobody would be that like kind of, clumsy about it so there's there's a lot to suggest that he was a very intelligent 
killer. So, so of course, when I read Salem's Lot, it resonated with me because there was a systematic disappearance of people in a small community and everybody was talking, everybody kind of knew who was responsible and they were talking around who was responsible, but everyone was afraid of actually saying it in a way that was kind of fascinating because it, it speaks to the cowardice of small town life where, yes, there are those bold confrontations, but mostly everybody just minds their own business and gossips about you behind your back. So minding their own business is really a fallacy in that regard because they don't. They just do it subversively. There also seems to be another aspect of the uh, the story of the, the novel that kind of fits in there as well. And that's to me, the horrific part of it is uh, it isn't that they're vampires. It's that, you know, the son comes back for the mother, you know, there's the, there's a duality to it. There's a memory of, of the innocent looking person. And then there's the monster that's now underneath. Right. And, and it's, uh, I mean, that's kind of vampires on the whole, right. Well, the yeah. first, like the, the the first wave of of victimization is family members because you're like, oh, I can get to them, like they'll yeah. they'll they'll trust me, they'll look at me and they'll see a familiar face, and I'll hypnotize them and sink my teeth into their neck. Um, so there is something so fascinating about the insidiousness of evil in a small town, and and just going back to like what we started to talk about beforehand in terms of the insidiousness of small town life. King does that so expertly because at the beginning of this book, as he is glancing around neighborhoods and peeking in windows and you would see something relatively innocuous and you would see a little bit of humanity, but then you peek through a window and see this young woman who's beating her baby, like yeah. until it's purple. And then, and what he's saying is that at, like there's evil everywhere and look and you think that this is a small innocent town about to be corrupted, but it's pre-corrupted. Like it's pre-corrupted by its humanity and really what uh, vampirism is doing is sort of taking the foothold that was already there in terms of a society's vulnerability to evil because evil is already innate in us in some capacity and it's just uh like a good virus taking hold and setting up shop and expanding its its abilities by taking over the system i think the most fascinating you know there's there's a lot of fascinating aspects to this story but, but you know chief among them is this idea that you know uh everyone had a pretty good idea who was doing it the the cops were fucking up but if people knew and were still not acting on it beyond, you know, warning their kids to stay away from this guy. It's interesting in Salem's lot, you know, heroes rise. Ben Mears is going to fight this thing. Father Callahan is going to fight this thing. You know, well, uh, so you mentioned Father Callahan. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he an, an attempt is made. An attempt is, an attempt is made. An attempt is made. But, you know, you touched on the Freddy Krueger parent contingent before, you know, and that's what I'm thinking. Like, you want to think that if something like this were to happen in your community, if, if Barlow moved in or, or a, an alleged serial killer and you were aware of this, that you would fight against it. So it's, it's uh, darkly fascinating to me that of like who stands up and who doesn't stand up. Type yeah. Of thing? That this, yeah, that, you know um, it sounds like, you know, a whole town, you know, not a, not a huge town, but still a town was aware of this and, because of the police's 
Keystone cop like ability to solve the case, you know, well, and, and their own egos and not wanting to share information and wanting to be the person that that catches the criminal. So they're not going to give anything that they have to somebody else who might have a complimentary piece of the puzzle that could actually help them solve it. Everybody is driven by small town ego, mm, which yeah. is, you know, a specific thing in and of itself, like, you know, just being on Facebook and seeing people who still live in my small town and the small mindedness that they, they hold on to because to expand your mind would require some effort. And, uh, and I think with some of these situations, the, the Ben Mears or the Matts, uh, you know, these characters who were, uh, did have some sort of moral or ethical compass to the evil that was going on. There's, there's so much about the human condition that is just unsure. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when we're like, we're in a, an era of kind of cult like Trumpism where people are so determined that they know the truth and the truth is so easily defined by them. And, but science is like, no, you're wrong. Um, and they're like, nope, science is wrong because they have this wonderful defense mechanism with our neurology, which coagulates around an idea and solidifies and makes any challenging idea to that, that, that scabby idea that's already formed almost impossible for it to, to win because it got there second. Totally. You know, they say that, like, you know, fear is the great motivator for most decisions and a lot of bad decisions. But, you know, I think specifically and you see this, you see this especially on social media and you see it particularly in politics these days. But I think it's even more specifically just fear of being wrong. People don't like to admit when they're wrong and they they can't just say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. You know, like that's that's a huge thing that. I, I think is at the root of so much bullshit, uh, especially now, and I'm sure throughout history, but um, that human uh, aversion to, to just saying like, yeah, I was wrong or, you know, no one wants to be wrong. And it well, motivates think, a lot of bullshit. Go ahead. What I think that boils down to in a really interesting way is that people are fundamentally aware of the delicacy of their perception of reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even as a relatively sophisticated human being who's educated and traveled and, uh, you know, is fascinated with human psychology, I, I question my perception of reality often because <laughs> it's, it's hard not to, because right. you're like, are we in a hologram or like, what is the truth <laughs> of the situation? Like, what is perception? And I think one of the reasons that people are so reluctant to admit that they're wrong is that whenever, because it's something that they feel clear about and they're like, oh my God, don't threaten my clarity because then I have to reassess all this other work and go back and, and re perceive things. So yeah, yeah. there's almost this laziness that's like, please God, don't, don't make me have to think about this again because my mind just settled on what it was comfortable knowing as 
factual or reality. And if you're questioning my perception of reality, then what threads is that going to pull with my other perceptions? And I think it's, I think it's hard being a human being. I think it's hard processing information, you know, sensorily and, and perceptually as, as, you know, our brains are, you know, big puddings, you know, the big, great puddings. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you mentioned earlier that you were big into vampires back in the day. I'm curious to hear you uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Are you still a vampire guy? Um, you know, I think there's, I'm, I'm all monsters, you know, and that's one of the things that I think was so, so fascinating about vampirism in general is the, the allure of it. And what's so fascinating in the juxtaposition of Toby Hooper's adaptation of Salem's Lot versus the novel, we see much more in Toby Hooper's adaptation. We see what happens to the Glick boys explicitly. We don't, you know, we don't just cut away to finding a body like, you know, slumped at the bottom of the bed. We see Ralphie tapping at the window and wanting to be let in something that we just kind of assumed reading the book. So there was this wonderful elegance, uh, at which and, and really a sophisticated storytelling style for Stephen King to allow the reader to fill in some of those blanks that the filmmakers knew that they had to provide an image for in order to to get the right kind of horror. And it's interesting in the novel that Barlow is Dracula. Like he's like there's there's kind of no mistaking the the European aristocratic kind of allure of ancient wisdoms and monies and confidence as as a seduction device. And we're able to read on the page, yes, when we meet him, he has gray hair and shocks of charcoal, and then he becomes, you know, a handsome black-haired man by the time he he falls on Susan, which is like, I remember reading that line over and over again when they fell on her. And it was such a uh, an elegant way to say they fucking grabbed her and and <laughs> took her screaming into the night. But what he said is they fell on her and your, your mind was like filling in all of those other blanks. But what, what reading those things allow you to do is paint a more complete picture of who Barlow is as a handsome man and knowing the levels of, okay, I'm seeing a handsome man, but this is a monster who's going to kill me and take away my humanity. Um, and you have to read all of those things and understand the tiramisu of Kurt Barlow as a handsome character. Whereas what Toby Hooper at all did so brilliantly by kind of Max Shrekking uh, Barlow up into, an undeniable monster is that he realized the reading audience is not the visual audience and that the visual audience isn't going to be able to process as succinctly the tiramisu of evil that Barlow represents in the books. So he had to give them a monster. And, and it was just as effective in a completely different way, two different types of meals, but both nourishing for me. But they were different. I, I recognized the difference was in the fundamental depiction of evil and the trust in the audience to be able to not dismiss a good looking man as like when Frank Langella shows up, you're like, yeah, I'd suck it. And he can suck me too. Let's go. It's <laughs> like he's hot. And, you know, the, as opposed to 
what Barlow represented in the miniseries, which I watched live on air and was like, oh my God, like this is like, I, I, I know my taste now, um, was something that was much more challenging in terms of vampires, because part of the delivery mechanism, part of the brownie, the brownie and the marijuana brownie, the delivery, the sugary delivery mechanism for the THC into your system is the idea that there is an attractiveness and a seduction. And you will at least be getting off, if only momentarily, you will be getting off and you will enjoy this. It was like, no, it's it's fucked up. It's evil. Your life will end. You're going to be a monster. This is a monster. It's not sexy. It's not, you know, alluring. It is a monster boiling up from the floor of your kitchen, which is such a great uh, metaphor, once again, for the horrors of small town life is that it does boil up from your kitchen floor. Well, it's, it's interesting that you talk about being the monster kid, you know, reading this and the, one of the main characters in the story is Mark Petrie, who is the same thing. He is, uh, I think in the book, he's 11, 11 or 12. He's an 11 year old monster kid. And so he recognizes all this stuff when it comes up. And I, I remember feeling that I, I knew this kid, you know, that I related to this kid, that this kid would be my friend. I could project myself onto, you know, the, this kid in the middle of a, you know, horrific event, you know, trying to warn everybody around him that because he knows what's going on, you know, it's like, well, he's uh, Rand- uh, he's Randy in Scream. He's the right. one who's, who's read the material and seen the movies and knows the rules and knows how this works. And it's such a, a, a simple, brilliant narrative device is to create the organic expert who right. is in the world knows has been exposed to the monstrosities and the monstrosities in this world. Like the reason that Ralphie and Danny Glick were going over to uh, Mark's house to begin with is because he had all of the Aurora models of the universal monsters. And so they were going there and that was the, 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 that was the drugs for them and the age. And even the Glick boy's mother, like, thought they were going over to do homework or what have you. And Ralphie knew that he had something on his brother, Danny, because Danny wanted to go see the monsters, something that his mother didn't allow in their house. So there was the promise of this thing that Mark had access to that was forbidden in some way. And like for me also as a gay kid growing up in small town America, knowing that I had to keep my mouth shut about that just out of social Darwinism, there's so there's such a profound queer reading of this novel because Mark at the beginning is called faggot, is called queer constantly and is bullied by a much bigger guy and kind of like shows the bully up. But there's a lot of references to characters being queer or fags or faggots or faggoty circus people. There's a lot of small town homophobia. So what, what King does so brilliantly is that he delivers the vampire menace into the small community as the thing that they're already talking about being better than or 
is sort of a, a, an evil in its own way is a gay couple who are coming into town and opening an antique store. Yeah. There's, there's nothing more queer about that than, yeah. you know, a middle-aged European couple coming into a small town and, you know, it's two men and they're sophisticated and they are representing something that this small town is afraid of on different levels, which is homosexuality and also worldliness because worldliness will show them how small they are. So there is a threat projected onto anybody who comes from the outside because they know more and have seen more and are more worldly. So for me as a little gay kid reading this and reading that Mark was teased for being gay or being perceived to be gay because he, his sexuality is not mentioned or referenced in any way, but he is constantly referred to as queer or, or, or fag and plays with dolls and is obsessed with dolls. And even the, the kids that are sort of the normal kids want to come over and see his strangeness because the strangeness is verboten in their own home. So there's, there's all of these levels that I don't know if King was consciously writing about a homosexual experience, but he was writing about a queer experience, queer not in terms of sexuality, but queer in terms of oddness in society and how Mark, as the queer in this community, the queer kid who plays with dolls, who likes monsters, who's attracted to monsters, who sees himself in monsters as the others, and anybody who does an emotional kind of psychological breakdown of universal monsters knows James Whale, as an open gay filmmaker, was coding the fuck out of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein as queer narratives. I mean, they're like the, the Frankenstein is created by two men in a relationship and they had a child that is outside of the, the realms of nature, i.e. nobody was putting a dick in a vagina to get it. So it represents <laughs> something completely different to the society. And you take all of that, all of the great universal queer coding of the monsters as others who are seen outside society incapable of loving the same way that we do. But as we, we experience in the narratives, they are just like us. Frankenstein's monster is a lonely man and he holds hands with the blind man in the, uh, in the cabin in the woods. And they both weep because they found humanity with each other in a way that everybody else in society believed that that was impossible for them. So once again, there's this wonderful marbleization of celebration of other as hero in a horror story that King embraces, whether consciously or unconsciously. Because I think it was probably like, you know, any, you know, straight kids are called queer and faggot all the time um, because it's, it's a, a dehumanization tactic. So he may be reading that just from his heteronormative experience, or he may just be you know, sophisticated and understand that gay people are people too. And there's even, you know, commentary in the boarding house when they're talking about different sort of, you know, rights, whether it's women's rights and even gay rights, you know, they, as, as a last uh, sort of like idea to bring to the equal rights table and the conversation, there's a lot going on in terms of the queerness and sort of, so like to, like, to break that down even further for the, the queer reading of Salem's Lot, it's pre-AIDS. 
what it does for me that is fascinating is that it illustrates why AIDS freaked everybody out because all of these fears were already present. There was something icky and creepy about gays that they did things that other people weren't supposed to do or know about or were ungodly, you know, in terms of sexual expression. One of the, the brilliance things about the AIDS crisis and its its kind of efficiency in villainizing queer people is that it brought to the surface what everybody was already thinking is that you're diseased, you're diseased of the mind. So now it's only appropriate that the disease of the body takes over. And I think that that is, is an interesting angle to look at that two perceived queer men coming into a small community brought disease and brought death. Yeah. To everybody. I mean, that's kind of the crazy thing that King does here. That town is, is almost wholly taken over. Right. Well, doesn't it, it, doesn't it, doesn't it get taken over? Isn't it sort of like, doesn't it become a ghost town? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It it absolutely does. I've read some readings on it about how, you know, it's also about, you know, the, the disappearance of, of the small town and, you know, the big towns, you know, creating all these you know, ghost towns around them and, and all that. Uh, but I, I think I, I, I remember I, I read something that King said about how, when he wrote it, it was in the immediate aftermath of Watergate. And he was so fascinated by the secrecy aspect of that. And he found that terrifying. I think he said the, the question of like, what did you know? And when did you know it? like stuck in his brain. And that's what he, he brought into this like merging of Dracula and our town that, that was, you know, kicking around in his, his mind is he really wanted to kind of delve into these, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the small town secrets and, you know, seeing, seeing the, uh, the rot underneath the veneer. And, uh, uh, that runs through all of his work for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking about about the hate crime that, that kicks off, uh, it, Adrian it, Mellon right. getting killed on the bridge or under the bridge, I should say, not on the bridge. But yeah, that's a really interesting take. I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. But you're exactly right. It's it is fascinating just in terms of the history of of the universal monster. You go back to to Nosferatu, uh, and oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Why am I blanking on his name? Who made Nosferatu? Uh, Murnau, uh, yeah. queer. A gay filmmaker telling a story about an outsider looking for love and through this horror context. And then it's, it's much more heterosexualized in, in Todd Browning's Dracula because Browning was a heterosexual filmmaker. But Murnau gave birth to the universal monster that James Whale as an openly queer man telling stories about loving from the outside gave the universal monsters such a a humanity that it's easy to overlook because it's so elegant. I'm imagining like creature from the black lagoon is my favorite of the universal monsters movies. I got a creature tattoo. I've got creature shit all over my office in my, in my house. Like it's, I I have a creature figure in my hand right now. (laughs) That's my favorite. You know, that's my, that's my favorite of those movies. I'll, I'll, go to bat for it any day and i'm i'm just imagining like a version of creature where the creature is more uh coded as female would be would be a sort of an interesting uh take on that i read a uh a draft of uh, a creature remake script they had at one point that was it was is that um, the, the aliens one kind of yes kind of no there was an undersea like 
like an underwater uh, lab. I don't think it was at the bottom of the lagoon, but I think it was like somewhere nearby. And there's like a scene where they had to all go in and like infiltrate this underwater base that had sort of gone off kilter and they encountered other, you know, shit in there. But the thing that really stuck out to me was that the way it ended was there was a fucking rocket launcher fight in the jungle. And, you know, the creatures running along with the female lead. They eventually escape this rocket launcher fight and they're making their way through the jungle (laughs) and they come to a clearing and a helicopter comes out of nowhere, lands and fucking uh, hide from the dark universe. So this would have been Russell Crowe steps out of the helicopter and is just like, come work with me in my lab. I think you have much to offer us. And like the lady looks at the creature and the creature kind of nods and they get on the fucking helicopter and leave. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, what are you people doing? I would, I would be as, as, as much as a fan I am of the creature and the creature's place in cinema history, I would kill to have seen something that stupid play out on screen. I mean, can you uh, imagine? I would uh. kill to prevent it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got no, I got no dog in this fight. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a shareholder. If the worst case scenario is I lose a couple hours of my time, I don't really care what they do with any of these movies. I want to be entertained and I want oh, to be I do. good. I, 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 well, you just said that you, you cared. If you want it to be good and you want to be entertained, then you care. I would prefer that, but I could not tell you how many bad movies I love. You know, I love a lot of bad movies too. Uh, Halloween Three: Season of the Witch is one of my favorite movies. I recognize it as as being, you know, Scooby Doo with boobs and beer. Sure, but sure. Um, the central story is fantastic. You know, a a an old witch opening a toy company so he can kill children <laughs> on Halloween night because they disrespect his religion. It's yep. fucking great. I love it. So and I. He's, I and- and he succeeds. That that's the fucking crazy <laughs> yes. part. That's the reason I, I, I love Halloween three because my definition of a bad movie is, is is a movie that doesn't live up to whatever they were trying to do. I've had arguments with like about uh, Rocky Horror with people and like people so like oh that's a that's a really shitty movie and I'm like no it's it's a legit that's like saying because it's silly. Uh, you don't get it. The opening song is saying it, it's in love with B movies and that's what it wanted to make. It tells you right up front what it right. is. That is the movie they wanted to make. That is what they set out from, you know, the, the, the first, uh, you know, production meeting that, that is what they wanted to do. Yeah. Well, and, um, and, and you look at Rocky horror picture show as a, you know, I, I think it deserves a lot of credit because yes, it is sort of a, a cheap, bad movie, but really what it is doing is recognizing the fetishization of creating life uh, through kind of 50s archetype. Because if you look at those AIP movies, even even uh, Revenge of the Creature, The Creature Walks Among Us, he grabs a bodybuilder off the beach. You know, so he's like, they're already starting to queer in such an interesting way. And the male body is becoming um, fetishized in the way the female body was in, in pinup. So what the AIP stories, the I was a teenage Frankenstein, I was a teenage werewolf, they're all dealing with kind of perversions of horror hormones in in fascinating ways but as they were 
coming to fruition in this time when we were kind of celebrating the, the beach blanket bingo boys in type swimsuits and the muscle builders of the Steve Reeves era. Everything that Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of like hung a queer lantern on was already there. And Rocky mm. Horror was like pulling it out and saying, I'm sorry, Steve Reeves, you're queer. People who are like watching your movies to ogle the male body. Yes, it's for it's for straight women, but really it's for gay men because that, that's who's going to respond to the visual stimulation. And even things like um, House of Dracula or House of Frankenstein, there were often like, for instance, like with with Barlow and Straker. A couple of old guys, old white, older white guys who fetishize younger men and turn them into corpses or zombies for them to do with what they will. And then you look at the motivations of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was constantly trying to bleach people's brains to turn them into zombies, but wasn't a chemist and wasn't a neuroscientist and didn't know what would happen if you inject bleach into a brain. He thought like, oh, it just shut down motor functions, but they would still be my boyfriend and they wouldn't leave me and they would do what I wanted, but no, he would kill them and I'd have to refrigerate them and eat them and, and do all the other stuff that he did. But there's a fascination with this older men trying to control younger men by killing them and controlling their corpses uh, kind of thing or turning them into monsters of some kind that went all through AIP films. And then, so what Richard O'Brien was doing was like, y'all, this is queer. This is queer as fuck. And I'm going to show you why look. And so he eroticized Rocky in the way that he felt was being queer coded already in a lot of these movies in a fascinating way. So I, I think, Rocky Horror, yes, it's a it's a bad movie, but the thematics and the music and the the cultural awareness of the genre is top shelf. What do you think about the Sorry Toby- to queer all over you guys? No, this is fine. <laughs> this is fine. This is exactly what we want. How do you feel about the Hooper version? Do you think it's a good movie or a bad movie? I love it. I rewatched it uh literally just this morning. Mm-hmm. Um I bought the Warner Archive uh Blu-ray. Right. And so it's the movie, not the miniseries. Th- well, no, the, it's the miniseries. Well, I think, no, it's the miniseries. Oh, was it three hours long um, or two hours long? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was three. I don't know. I'd have to look. But uh, they only gave me option for one. I figured it would have been the whole miniseries. Uh, it, it definitely, I, the movie version is gorier, right? That's that's the one that they, I think they so, made yeah. for European cinemas. I think it was the miniseries because this one wasn't wasn't very gory at all. Um, but, uh, watching it cleaned up, like really helped me a lot. Cause my memory of watching it, you know, was like watching, a, you know, the VHS, uh, uh, you know, from my childhood, you know, running it at blockbuster or whatever. And, um, I just remember it felt like kind of dated already, you know, when I saw it and it must've been late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Um, but like watching it kind of cleaned up, I, I was actually really impressed with how good it looks for a TV movie. I think it's pretty effective. Like the scenes everybody always remembers and it's the scenes that scarred a, a generation or, you know, the, um, uh, the glick children coming to the window, you know, right. first, right. First, the little brother to the big brother, and then then Danny to to uh, Mark Petrie, uh, and that is done so well. There are little moments of of, uh, of pizzazz that 
that Toby Hooper throws in that kind of keeps it alive where I'd say about two thirds of the movie is kind of a standard, you know, medium shot, cut to close up, cut to close up. But the, every once in a while he'll throw in these crazy like camera it. moves. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's a very inventive movie. And, and like, I think that in my mind, I, I probably place it a little bit lesser than what it should have been. I'd place it much higher now. Hooper's interesting I, like that, where a lot of his shit is like that for me, where big chunks of it will fall flat. And then there are these sequences where you're like, God damn, that was good. And he started off with Texas Chainsaw. So he's like coming right out of the gate with a movie that's right. basically nothing but moments that work. But after that, Hooper was pretty hit or miss for me, I think. But there was always something in his movies that betrayed his talent. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like, totally. even Life Force, which is a, a, a mixed bag, has fantastic sequences of vampirism and seduction. And it was almost the anti-Salem's uh, Lot TV movie in <laughs> ways yep. because you have this sort of rat-faced monster and then you're going to is it Matilda May, who is, you know, beautiful and sumptuous and has this lovely young body that everybody sort of like drops jaw over. Yeah. Um, there are a fascinating compare and contrast of his 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 uh, explorations of vampire mythos. And like the Rob Lowe version is such an interesting kind of mm. antiseptic story. It's not bad, but it's definitely not right. good. It just feels like it's watered down. I haven't seen that version. It's worth watching. Um, I, 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 James Cromwell was, uh, uh, he played Callahan in that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 He, he yeah. has a bigger, bigger part <laughs> in, in it. I'm curious to see what the, you know, they're, they're working on a new version of it now. And I'm very curious to see what a, a Salem's lot take looks like in 2021 or whenever we, whenever it gets made. I think that the issues I have, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the movie. I never, I never got around to the Rob Lowe miniseries and, uh, and the book doesn't even rank that high for me because I'm, I'm not really like much for vampire shit, but I would be really curious to see like a modern take on it. I'm curious if they make it a period piece or if it's, you know, uh, set in present day. I'm curious what the vampires are going to look like. Um, I, I feel like there is a version to be made of it that I could fully embrace. It just hasn't happened yet. It could work today. I mean, because the as we've been talking about, the main themes of it are, are you know, finding the the rot underneath the veneer. And, sure. you know, if you have next door, if you've ever looked at next door, you see that rot on full display at all time. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, that, anywhere. That still there. Yeah. So I, lo- I look forward to that, but I'm not as big on this one as, as a lot of pe- other people are. And I think mostly it has, it comes down to me just not really caring about vampires, but. Well, it's also, it's a very subtle book. Like it's like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the Tobe Hooper version is much more aggressive, much more of a horror story. <laughs> And you see the keys that that were taken from Bram Stoker. You right. see how that's like it's very clearly uh, motivated by a certain elegance in storytelling, and there wasn't a lot that you saw in terms of the horror, unlike the to- Toby Hooper version, which is you know frequently has its horror on its sleeve. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's interesting that you you say that because uh, this is the one book that King was censored on, you know, because this was still oh. super early in his career, and they actually his publisher actually made him cut a scene uh, a sequence and rewrite it because it was too graphic. 
And the scene was the uh, the doctor, Jimmy Cody, um, his death scene. He The way it is now is he's impaled um, on a bunch of knives. Uh, oh, when he falls the, into the basement? Right, yes. And uh, But the original concept that the publisher says was said was just too much was uh, that the vampires would summon a horde of rats from the town dump Hell and yeah. they were going to swarm all over him and they were like going to eat him alive essentially. And when he tried to scream to warn uh, uh, everybody upstairs, like one of them like ran into his mouth and like chewed his tongue out. Love oh it. God, that's great. Love it. Yeah. It's a great scene, right? Brian, you've a lot of your work is quite clearly uh, influenced by King. Um, I mean, you you worked on a what would you call it a, a TV movie for Carrie or like a backdoor pilot for a series or I know yeah, there was both of those things. Okay, yeah, I didn't know. Uh, Doesn't which. make it right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, Angela Bettis uh, movie, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Angela Bettis and Patricia Clarkson were amazing. They were so good, and and here's here's the one thing that. There have been a ridiculous amount of carry adaptations, yeah. you know, more than people think. It, it's been made and remade and sequelized in, in random ways so much. But, like, they never really get carry. And, and I love Sissy Spacek, and I think she was amazing in that in that role in uh, De Palma's movie. Uh, but she she felt more naive than the weirdo that King wrote about, right? Mm-hmm. And you casting, or you having Angela Bettis in in that role finally gave Carrie white, you know, that kind of just something is off about her. You know, you, you kind of understand why it's not just mean girls being mean girls. Like they, they ostracized her because she, she really didn't fit uh, amongst them. And it's the only movie like Chloe Grace Moretz is also great. And, you know, but you know, she's, it, it's, it's not, but, <laughs> but you know, all, I mean, it, all wrong for Carrie to me. She did a good job and I'm just saying that she's a good yeah. actress and I understand, right, right. you know, it, of course she can carry a movie, uh, but, but you're right. She's wrong for, for the part and you're, you're and, carry and so is, is, is the only one that kind of got that. But, but nobody was a, a, uh, a soft round pimply faced carry. Right. Like we haven't right. seen that carry. We, you know, and, and I think FX is developing a carry they announced like earlier this year or something, uh, that they were, they were doing something with the material, but hopefully they do, they, they do what nobody has done thus far, which is to see Carrie White as a, um, plump, acne scarred young woman. And that's, you know, I think the Chloe Moritz, I was like, I'm sorry, she's beautiful. And yeah. And, you know, even, even Angela Battis is a beautiful woman and Sissy Spacek is a beautiful woman. So there's, there's no, um, we haven't had the version of Carrie that feels like the character. I do right. think though, that with Bettis and uh, Spacek, you're still capturing some of the inherent strangeness of the character and, yes. the, and the otherness, yes. you know, it's, I it's agree. not a, a literal one for one for what's on the page. No. But you are still still getting some of that. Like Chloe Grace Moretz is, you know, now we're talking about something else entirely. You know, it just no. She should she should be playing Chris. She yeah. should be playing the mean girl, dumping yeah. the pig's blood on uh, on the the weird girl. Yeah. yeah. So Brian, you're to back to my original question was you know I've I've, I've picked up on a, a few uh, sort of King references or or nods in your your work, uh, notably in Hannibal. But I'm also I also understand that. You know, there's a there's a scene in Hannibal where uh, somebody gets killed on a pair of deer antlers, 
and, and yes, that, yes. And yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about a, a little bit about that in relation to Salem's lot. That, that's, you know, a clear nod to what Toby Hooper did right. um, with that death in the Marston house. And you know, I grew up in 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 the Pacific Northwest, so there was a lot of hunting, and there was a lot of you know deer carcasses, and this sort of fetishization of predator prey relationships in a unique way. So I, I like antlers weaponized against people are always fascinating because they work on so many different levels of you know what was formerly the predator is now the prey is now being victimized by the weapons of the creature that it dominated Mm -hmm. and murdered for its own ego. So there's a lot of really interesting aspects of, of antlers in relationship to human deaths. Uh, But mostly it was just the, the abrupt terror of James Marston picking up this man and just walking him down the hall, you know, gingerly <laughs> yeah. until like he's forced on the on the the antlers. So there is that sweet spot of a lot of iconic imagery that I got from the Toby Hooper version, whether it's the Glick Boys uh, at the window or in the grave with mm. uh, Jeffrey Lewis, or even Jeffrey Lewis in the corner of the the boarding house next to the window and the rocking chair, a lot of really effective scares that that came out of King and from so many different uh, directions. And even, even, you know, his, you know, as a, as a gay man, I, I do queer, like, I, it's hard for me not to, to read queerness on a lot of, of King's work. I mean, you look at Christine and, you know, yes, there is the interpretation of Christine as the ultimate firebrand female of, of jealousy, but cars are traditionally masculine and down to being referred to as muscle cars. And so for this young teenage boy struggling with his place in society and not knowing how to interact with girls, having a better relationship with his car that is, you know, masculine despite the feminization that is projected upon it is a really interesting kind of queer reading as well. So I think what, what Stephen King did so well is that he illustrated the point of view of the other so clearly and so elegantly that it became very easy to see myself as a queer person through his work in a way that was that I, that I, I recognized was not necessarily intended by him. Although I didn't, ha- I, I would love to have a conversation about queer coding and queer readings of King's work with King. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear him talk about that in length. I'm sure he'd be like, "No, I didn't think about it that way." Get your mind. <laughs> well, that's my that's my thing. Is like, how much of it is intentional, and how much of it is subconscious, and how much you know. Th- there's a lot to explore there. I think. I'd be, I'd, I'd with be. any sort of reading, it's that's what's so interesting about where we are in terms of audience accessibility to the storytellers is that we can, at the time, mainstream audiences weren't thinking about James Wells, a queer man, telling us a queer story through Dr. Pretorius and his, you know, outlandishness and his doll collection <laughs> and and then wanting to to continue the perversities in the eyes of the one God were something that probably just seemed like window dressing to audiences 
and you know the 30s and 40s and 50s and as they as they saw these stories but if you sort of if you break down like well that's a that's a queer guy who had a queer experience telling those stories and he is that he is the prism through which this light is flowing so you can't help but pick up a rainbow we're running a little long here but there is something that i wanted to to touch on real quick before we wrapped it up this is such an interesting time for king this is his second published book and he establishes something here that I feel like is the kernel of an idea that he ended up running with very short, shortly after. And that's, um, I think that there's a, a little bit of the kernel of the idea of The Shining ends up here with the Marston house. It's almost a character in the story itself. You mean in terms of like, like a, a, the house that keeps the horrors that were committed within its walls? Well, I mean, people. I think they say in, in the book and in the, the uh, Toby Hooper film, they talk about how an evil house attracts evil men right. and and how, you know, the atrocities that, that uh, have happened in there had an echo. At least it did for uh, Ben Mears, you know, who had as a child, you know, saw the, the specter of Hubie Marston, you know, hanging by his neck and how that affected him. But it really feels like like he finished this up and he was like thinking about, you know, making this haunted hotel thing. And then he kind of the Marson house is like the prototype for the Overlook. Hmm. I think that's 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 absolutely astute. It's interesting because the Marston house attracts, you know, Straker and Barlow, but it also attracted Ben Mears. And so there there's this, which is, which is, which is an interesting kind of metaphor for vampirism is that it attracts both evil and good because of its power. Ben Mears was attracted to that house because he wanted to revisit the trauma of his childhood and find out what's real in front of him and what's real in his head. And that was what he was wrestling with, but a truer evil or a truer connoisseur of evil got to it before him and being able to extrapolate from that, a, a house into a hotel where a history of horrors are stained on those walls is is a really interesting extrapolation and yes. And uh, to the storytelling that, that yeah. King was, was exploring himself. No, I mean, what's so fascinating about reading this though. I mean, cause just at this point, this is King coming into his own, you know, and this is him figuring out his uh, long form writing. I mean, I think he, he wrote the majority of this, like in between his teaching job and his like laundry job. Like he, this is the last thing that he wrote before he got, rich enough where he could be writing full time. And, and it's just interesting. Like it just from a purely professorial look at his work, it's just, it's a fascinating read in that aspect because this is the King that we know and love being born in a way, even more so than, than Carrie, his first published book. This one just, it has so much of the, the things that would become the cornerstones of, of his writing. Yeah. Because we've talked about his, you know, usage of small town and, and, you know, I mean, there, there, you can see a little bit of needful things in there. There's a little Tommy knockers. There's, you know, a little bit of it, you know, all this, these little aspects, even Cujo, you know, which delves into the melodrama of, of a small town, you know, it's like, you know, all that stuff is, would become his, his calling card. And this is kind of where he discovers it. I think that's the, I think I think that's a hot take. Yeah, I agree with this take. <laughs> All right, good. Nothing <laughs> controversial. I have no challengers. I have no. I won. No dis. <laughs> no dis- uh, dissenting you know, opinion. One thing that was uh, 
also interesting, you know, I, like I remember it's, it's so, and this is, is probably an overshare, but just to go to the, the sort of queer triggering of Salem's Lot as a kid who is ju- like testicles just dropped and reading this book and, and when Mark is kidnapped by Straker and tied to a chair in an upstairs bedroom of the Marston house, perhaps the one where, you know, the, the hanging took place there, there was such an anticipation in in terms of the seduction of evil in a small town uh, of something that represents sophistication and the greater world at large that you don't feel that you have access to. I remember so keenly relating to Mark tied to that chair, waiting for Barlow to wake when the sun went down and Barlow and Mark was like, how do I survive this? Um, how do I get away? And I remember being a kid living in a small town thinking like, would it be so bad if you just went off with Barmo? Like, <laughs> would it be like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't that fulfill all of the dreams that everybody is talking about you not being able to have or not having access to. And in the book, it, there was a sense of seduction that it, because the vampires were attractive and because they, they seemed full of life afterwards. And in the movie, they were monsters. They were elephant skin, leathery, hissing creatures. There was no kind of like, like, I, I, cause I watched the television movie first and then read the book mm. and reading the book, I found it much more erotic and much more sexy being the age of the kid tied to the chair, waiting for the handsome older gay <laughs> couple to come to the room and do what they would will. There was something that was very exciting about that as an opportunity to escape the smallness of this life that I found very thrilling in that moment of storytelling. I think that's one of the things that, that King does so expertly is that he, he baits the trap so sweetly for these things that you do have to have a tight moral compass in order to guide yourself through the temptations. But reading that at the time that I read it, which I was probably 10 or 11, I wanted to go with, with the fancy gaze (laughs) and leave the small town behind. It was such a, it was, it was, it was the better option. Yeah. Go antiquing. You can go antiquing all over the world. (laughs) Yeah. Antiquing all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) This is usually where I uh, ask people if they've, if they've got anything to plug, have you got anything on the, on the horizon you want to, you want to tease? Not that I can talk about. Like it's always weird. weird. Like after I I left four shows in quick succession, I'm like, I'm not talking about what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. (laughs) I'm going to beat Beyonce and drop it like uh, (laughs) an album and then just keep mum on it while I'm working on it because you never know what will happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Great. Well, I, I, I love talking about Stephen King and he, was very formative and it's interesting to sort of like my my familiarity with king was so enjoyed for all through my adolescence and i do credit him with surviving adolescence uh by escaping into the worlds that he painted so thank you for having me
Many thanks to Brian Fuller for joining us for that very spirited and highly entertaining chat. What a sweetheart that guy is, huh? Oh, man. I don't want to pick favorites, but uh, this episode certainly certainly uh, up in my my top five. And uh, it's been it's been funny in the lead up to this episode, seeing the fanable community. Uh, very excited to see see Brian on this show. And um, uh, we'd love to have him back at some point, hopefully to promote a new season of Hannibal. That's my secret wish. I think they're going to get a shot. I think they're going to get a shot at some point. That's my guess. Yeah, no, there, there's uh, it's too good. There's too many options out there. It'll happen. So what do we got coming up next week, Eric? This is the part where we're usually very coy about who's going to be on, uh, but we're going to spill all the beans for next week's episode. That is correct. Next week's episode uh, has already been heard by some of our uh, some of our listeners. Those of you who are signed up to the KingCast Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash the KingCast, uh, are already uh, aware of this episode, so we're not going to play coy with it. It is the Noah Sagan Langoliers episode. Eric, where have our listeners seen Mr. Noah Sagan? The devastatingly handsome Mr. Noah Sagan, I should say. Most people know him as uh, Kid Blue from Looper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, I first saw him in in Ryan Johnson's Brick, uh, and he's been kind of used as Ryan's uh, lucky charm ever since. I'm going to say Muse. I'm going to go Muse here. His French girl. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. And he also had a huge role in last year's Knives Out, which was one of my favorite movies of the year. He's Trooper Wagner in that and just kills it. Yeah, he's the, he uh, gets to be the fanboy. And uh, oddly enough, he's also a fanboy in real life, especially when it comes to Stephen King stuff. So he's uh, he's got a very unique angle on uh, the Langoliers and, and on King in general. He's got a, a very massive first edition hardback collection that he, he tells us about. And uh, it, it's a really fun episode. The miniseries maybe doesn't hold up very well, uh, but the... <laughs> but, but, you like me being political there? Yeah. Um, we dive into that. We dive into the nostalgia that we we kind of have for it because all of us saw it at a young age, and uh, uh, and I think we all agree that the the short story or the novella itself is pretty boss, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And then for our patrons, we also have uh, an episode coming out. Scott, do you want to tell the people what what the episode is? That's this Friday. This Friday. The day after Thursday, but prior to Saturday, as as you well know. This is an episode that uh, has also been oft requested from our fans. And it is one of our least favorite King books and one of our least favorite King movies. And that is Dreamcatcher. For this episode, we have brought on a comedian by the name of DC Pearson. Uh, he was one of the founding members of Derek Comedy, and you've seen him on communities and captain america winter soldier yeah um, he sells uh he sells a cell phone or tries to sell a cell phone to uh captain america and and uh, black widow if you remember that's correct uh he's also uh in the criminally underseen movie mystery team that movie is funny as fuck if you can seek it out please do so yeah he came on to talk to us about Dreamcatcher. it is not the funniest episode uh, you would think a dream capture episode might be uh, a pretty rollicking affair, but for this one, um, it's it's a little more serious minded and about where King was at that time in his uh, career and you know life because he just been hit by a van and was on a lot of painkillers when he wrote that one. 
that episode will remain exclusive to our uh, Patreon subscribers. So if you want to hear the Dreamcatcher episode, get signed up for the Patreon right now. That's uh, patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. And I think that's it for this week. Yeah. Yep, that's it. We'll see you guys next week for the Langoliers. See y'all then.